please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. So last week, I think it was last week, Garrett mentioned that his sermon and Michael's sermon actually came together in some way. And when they both, both preached about sin, and um, what do you know? Today it happened again. Um, <laughs> but this time with me and Garrett. Um, as you know, we've been going through First Peter, um, I want to say not verse by verse, but section by section. And steadily going through it for the last few months. So those of you that have been on holiday, you've missed a bit, but that's fine. Uh, you can catch up in your own time again. But the last section that we looked at was chapter 2 and verse 4 to 8. And in there, Peter uses some text from the Old Testament, and he, he likens Jesus to a stone. You will remember that from last, well, last time. He says in verse 4 that we can come to Jesus as to a living stone, a stone that was rejected by men, but who was chosen by God and precious. So I think before we start, let's just bow our heads and we pray. Ask the Lord to lead us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this wonderful day. Lord, we thank you that we can come together, that we can open up your word, that we can sing your praises. Lord, we thank you for all that you do. And so, Lord, we ask, will you please bless this sermon? Will you please work in our hearts through your word and through your spirit? Lord, we need you. We cannot go on without you. Please help us today. Lord, we thank you for um, bringing Brother Mike back today, that he can be here today. It's wonderful to see him, wonderful to have him here. But Lord, it's wonderful to have you here, and we thank you that you are with us and that you go with us wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Now, I mentioned about the living stone, Jesus being likened to a living stone, and Peter uses this image of the chief cornerstone that was rejected by the builders, okay? It's actually a few Old Testament texts that he quotes um, in this piece between verses 4 to 8 that we looked at. And with that, he's saying that Jesus, that's Jesus, the precious chosen chief cornerstone, was rejected by the religious leaders of the time. And it's actually very apparent if you read through the four Gospels. You know, you, you see it everywhere. These religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and so on, they were quick to dismiss Jesus. He didn't fit their image of what the Messiah would look like when he arrived. They were expecting a king that would come and would wipe out their enemies and give them their promised land back. But instead, they found that Jesus came as a humble servant. Uh, there was nothing that you could point to in Jesus' life um, that would make you think that he was a king. I mean, he was born in a stable. <laughs> he was laid down in a manger. You know, a manger is a, is a feeding trough for animals. He was laid down in that. that that's not kingly. That's not royal. Um, and then his earthly father was just a carpenter, <laughs> just a regular old guy, doing his work every single day. And so in the eyes of the world, he was just that. He was the son of a carpenter. That's Jesus. When he was 12 years old, he, he reasoned with the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple. And, and the Bible tells us that they were amazed at his answers. But they thought, well, that's a clever boy. And that was it. Nothing more than that. And then during his ministry, 
it seems as if they really never gave him a chance. Uh, from the very beginning, they tried to make him say something wrong. You know, we, we read that a whole lot of times. They tested him or they tried to make him say something. And they would ask him questions that they thought, obviously, that he wouldn't be able to answer. I mean, it's just this carpenter's son. And some of the questions that they brought up actually came, came from their own disputes that they had one with another. You will remember that one time where the Sadducees came and they asked Jesus a question about the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, you should know, didn't believe in something like a resurrection. And um, so they asked Jesus that, that thing about the, the woman that married this one man and he had six brothers and they all died off one by one. And in the end, when she dies, who will be her husband in the resurrection? Now, they asked Jesus this to test him once again. You know, they want, wanted to see, where does he stand on this thing? But they didn't know who they were dealing with. You know, Jesus told them that they did not know the scriptures nor the power of God. And that there is no such thing as marriage in the, in the resurrection. And, and he went on with that. And we won't go into that today. <laughs> but he had the perfect answer every single time when they tried to test him. And he finally silenced them and they never asked him anything again. <laughs> but that didn't convince them. Jesus came and he healed a lot of people. And he, he preached the gospel to everyone. And just like the scriptures said the Messiah would do when he comes. That didn't convince them either. They scrutinized every single thing that he did. You know, they, they picked him apart. But I, but I want to say this. I don't think there's anything wrong with scrutinizing somebody that comes and says, I'm not only sent by God, but I am God. <laughs> if anybody comes to you with that, please test that guy. <laughs> All right, don't, don't just take his word for it. <laughs> okay, please. There, there are people like that today that, that tell us they are the Messiah. Okay? It's weird if you say they are because there's only one Messiah, but okay, let's leave it there. Let's leave it there, <laughs> all right? We need to test this, but, and, and they did test this, and uh, they examined him, but the problem there is that they used their own faulty religious system to look at Jesus and to examine him. They didn't use the Bible. They, they added a bunch of stuff to it. These religious leaders were supposed to be the guardians of the faith in Israel. But they were so preoccupied with their own agendas and their, their own rules and systems that they didn't even recognize that the Messiah had come to them and he's standing right there in front of them. They didn't even see that. And so the builders rejected the stone. That, that's what Peter is talking about. They rejected the stone, not because there was anything wrong with this stone. The stone was perfect. But because the builders measured this stone with the wrong instruments. They had faulty instruments. Now, of course, we know that not all of these religious leaders um, rejected Jesus. There were actually some of them that did believe in him. But the majority of them rejected him. And they finally had him murdered. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, We did esteem him stricken smitten of God and afflicted. You know, they thought that God was the one punishing Jesus for all of his blasphemies. You will remember that Jesus told them in so much words that I and the, fa and the Father am one. He told them repeatedly, I am God. I am him. And so they thought that he was blaspheming God. And they esteemed him to be nothing more than a sinner. And they rejected him. 
Now, at this point, I can't help but ask, what is your estimation of Jesus? What is your estimation? Now, I won't ask you to answer out loud today because we're sitting in a church, we have fellow believers around us, and it'll get awkward. (laughs) Um, but, But you will also give me the correct answer, you know, the Sunday school answer. I don't want that. Examine yourself. What is your estimation of Jesus? Is he important? I'm not asking is he important to you. Is he important? Is he God? Or was he just some teacher that lived a long time ago? Maybe he was a madman. But who is Jesus? Some of you have never even given these questions any thought. Um, You've never even bothered to study the life of Jesus to, to find out exactly who he is. So I hope you will do that if you haven't done that before and if you're not sure. Uh, We can help you with that. We can help you with that. But Peter says here in verse 7 of chapter 2 that to those of us who believe, He is precious. Why? Because He saved us. He saved us. He loved us so much to go through all of that humiliation and to finally pay the price for our sins. So if you ask us, you know, if I say us, I mean those that are saved here today. If you ask us, how do we esteem Jesus? Oh, He's precious. Oh, He's precious. And He's precious to God. The stone which the builders rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. That's the quote that Peter gives us here. He's the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. The most important stone in the whole building. And everything in this building should be aligned to this stone. Our lives should be aligned to Jesus. He's the cornerstone. The chief cornerstone. But to to those who are disobedient, Peter says here, and they reject him, he has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You know, they stumble on, on him and they are heading for judgment. Folks, there is no better time to go to Christ than the present. No better time. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. You know, He he willingly paid for your sins on your behalf with His own blood so that you can go free. And I'll tell you, nobody's ever been kinder to you. And nobody will ever be kinder to you than that. But please note, this is a one-time offer. And it expires the day that you blow out your last breath. That's, that's your only chance. But okay, Peter is writing to uh, believers in here and believers who have found Jesus to be precious, to be that precious living stone. So let's look at verse 9 and, and we'll just continue here. I'll just get a drink quickly. Verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. What a blessing! <laughs> what a blessing! Now, these are all Old Testament concepts that Peter is using here to emphasize the privileges that we as Christians have. These are all terms that that are used actually in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. You know, in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, uh, God tells Moses to say this to, to Israel. 
and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Sounds exactly like this, doesn't it? They were called a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. But now the nation of Israel has unfortunately lost those privileges, at least temporarily, because of their apostasy, because of their unbelief, because they, they are wicked sinners and because they killed the Messiah. That is why. Now that doesn't mean that God is done with Israel. He's not done with Israel. Okay, that, that's very clear from the Bible. He will one day restore Israel again uh, w- once they accept their Messiah. But for now, the church is a royal priesthood and a peculiar people and a holy nation. You know, a holy nation, that means we have been set apart. God set us apart from all the other nations. We're not part of them anymore. He set us apart. We're a holy nation. So important to, to realize that. You know, one day... <laughs> we will actually rule alongside Jesus in His kingdom. What a thought. What a thought. Folks, it is an amazing privilege that we as New Testament believers have to be a part of God's holy nation. What a privilege. Peter says here in in verse 10 that, that in times past, we were not the people of God, but now we are. Now we are the people of God. We have found grace and mercy from God in the Lord Jesus Christ when He forgave us our sins and when we put our faith in Him. That's amazing. So don't let the world tell you you're useless. Please don't. Don't listen to that. Now I know that the the insults and the the words from the world can definitely hurt you. It can hurt your feelings. That's for sure. But remind yourself that you are a part of God's holy nation. We are different. We've been set apart. That's why we don't fit in with the world. (laughs) You know, the world hates us because it hates Jesus. That's why. We're so closely associated with Him that they hate us as well. And remember what Jesus said, the servant is not above his master. But now why did God make us this holy nation and this peculiar people? Well, we find the answer there in verse 9. If you look at that again, there in the middle, he says, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he did it with a very specific purpose, actually. He did it so that we should proclaim him and his power and his wisdom and his love and his mercy and his grace and his goodness to, to the world. And we should proclaim it with our mouths. And with our lives. Both go together. You know, that day that God saved you through Jesus, He gave you a very specific purpose. You ask me, what's your purpose in life? Well, it is to show forth His praises. It is to proclaim Him in this world. That's your purpose. You know, God has made us to pass from darkness into light and from death into life, right? And so... If that is true of you today, well, then you should be proclaiming Him. (laughs) You know, we have spoken quite a lot about uh, proclaiming the gospel in this world, so I won't go too deep into that today, but that is exactly what Peter is talking about here. You know, every Christian should be going about evangelizing the world around him. That's your purpose. That is why you got saved, is so that others can get saved as well. Now, I know that what some of you are thinking, you're sitting there, okay, 
So he wants us to go preach on the streets again. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. There is, of course, nothing wrong with that. And I would urge you to go do that, but not today. Maybe another time. <laughs> I believe we should do whatever we can with the opportunity that we have. But that's not the only place where you can preach the gospel. Did you know you can do it at work? Now, don't steal your boss's time. But you can pull a colleague over when you're having a coffee or maybe take them out for lunch. You can have a chat with them. Or when you go to school, um, you know, you can take a moment during your break time when everybody's having lunch or just playing with a ball or whatever, and you can speak to one of your friends there. Maybe someone that's not your friend. You can, you can preach the gospel to them. If you are a boss, well, you can definitely take the time to talk to your employees about this. I mean, you make the rules. <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> you can talk to them about the grace of God that is revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or maybe if you're a mom or a dad here today, and I, I know, you know, we, we joked about that last night. We have so many babies popping up in this church now. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's just wonderful. But some of you are moms and dads of babies, of teenagers, or maybe, or maybe older people. And you know what? You have the perfect missions field right there in your house. You don't even need to leave your house <laughs> to go preach the gospel. You can do it in the comfort of your own home. <laughs> All right. All right. But however you do it, folks, you should know that the gospel is more than saying just the words to people. It's more than that. Now, of course, nobody can get saved if they, if they don't hear the gospel being preached to them. That's Romans chapter 10. And that makes sense. I mean, how else will they know the details about, oh, okay, so Jesus died for me. I need to go to him. I need to repent and you know, put my faith in him and so on. Of course, that is part of it. But you should also be aware that your testimony is equally as important when preaching the gospel. People will read you first before even listening to the words coming out of your mouth. It's a, it's a package deal. And it is somewhat unfortunate, but as soon as the world finds out that you are a Christian, you suddenly find yourself under a magnifying glass, isn't it? Oh man, they scrutinize everything and they, they will critique everything you do. And as soon as you step wrong in one way, ah uh, yeah, I knew it. That's how the Christians are. Hypocrites, hypocrites, you know. They will pick everything apart that you do. Because they've, they've got this idea in their minds that we think that we are better than them. Did you know we're not? We're better off, but we are not better. That's important. And I must say that Christians have, unfortunately, earned that reputation with the world throughout the years. But besides the bad behavior of those few that have done that and, and whatever, you can change that, you know. We can see that even in this epistle, even, that the attitude of the world towards the church was like that, you know. They were criticizing them, they were insulting them, and so on, ever since the church started. And so Peter is admonishing us here, to keep a good testimony amidst all of that. And he does so in three arenas of life in, in this, and in the, in the following times that I'll be before you, we, we, we will go through them. But it basically covers everything. You know. Firstly, he says that we should have a good testimony before the authorities that are placed above us. We all have that. Every single one of us have some sort of authority above us. 
Even if you think, well, I'm the boss of my company, who's my boss? Well, SARS. <laughs> That's your boss. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just saying. But secondly, he says that, that you should have a good testimony if you are somebody's employee. You should have a good testimony towards them. And lastly, he talks about having a good testimony at home. You know, in verse 15 of chapter 2, Peter is talking about submitting to the authorities placed over us, like I just said. And, and there he says this, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That's where the testimony comes in. From verse 18 onwards, he, he, he tells servants to, to submit, their, um, submit to their masters and to have a good testimony before them. And he, he tells them there in verse 20 that there is no benefit in suffering if you've done bad things. Absolutely no benefit. The benefit comes in when you've done good and you suffer because of that. That is, he says, acceptable with God. And he shows us there that that is exactly what Jesus did. Exactly. Jesus didn't return insults for insults. He didn't return threats for threats. But he committed himself to God. Folks, keep a good testimony. In chapter 3 and verse 1, um, Peter tells us, or tells the wives, to submit to their husbands and to have a good testimony before them. So that, he says, those husbands that are not yet saved, so that they can actually get saved when they see the behavior of their wives. That is amazing. You know, a wife will have the biggest impact on her unsaved husband, not by what she says, but what, by what she does. And we will look at that in the future, Lord willing. But then, this influence that we can have on people with our testimonies start in the home, and from there it goes outward. So we should be living in a way that, that demonstrates the validity of the gospel, and that actually silences the critics of Christianity. You know, our testimony showed to the world whether or not that which we believe is actually valid and true. It comes all from the testimony. And we will see this again in verse 12, but for now, let's continue with verse 11, now that we have the backdrop of verse 10, oh, 9 and 10. He says there, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. I love the way that Peter starts off here, you know. First off, he calls his audience dearly beloved, which really shows the heart of this apostle, doesn't it? You know, he is telling them to abstain from fleshly lusts, but all of that is motivated from the love that he has towards the readers of this epistle. He is not taking some sort of high and mighty stance over them. Okay. Instead, he is telling them how much he loves them. You're dearly beloved. And I believe that that should be the attitude of every single preacher that is preaching against sin. Any kind of sin. He should firstly love the people that he is preaching to. And then he can continue to preach against their sin. It should all be motivated from that love. You know, people can get really upset when you start preaching about sin. Really upset, especially if you preach on their own pet sin. You know what your pet sin is, right? Okay. <laughs> but you know, we've actually had people leave our church um, because our pastor preached on sin. 
And, and not in any sort of nasty way. If you, you know our pastor, he, he doesn't preach in a nasty way. Um, it was in a loving way, and he will preach about sin. And it's always followed up with the grace of God, isn't it? Always. Always. Because that is the gospel message. But I think that the real problem is that people just love their sin. <laughs> That's just it. You just love your sin. But folks, that should not be true of a Christian, of a child of God. We have been saved out of our sins so that it should not control us anymore. We had a nice, awesome study about that this morning. But Peter says here, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Now, this is also important, and it's a great reminder, I think. You see, if you are saved, then your citizenship is actually in heaven. It's in heaven, and you are a stranger, you're a, you're a pilgrim, just passing through this place on your way home. You know, the word pilgrim um, actually means a resident foreigner. A resident foreigner, all right? So, so that is to say that a pilgrim is somebody that lives in a place, uh, but he's not originally from that place, okay? Much like an immigrant, I would say. Almost like that, but not quite. You know, he lives in a place that is not his true home. He's, he's on his way to that home. Yeah, we have some pilgrims there. <laughs> Pilgrim. <laughs> American pilgrims. <laughs> All right. But that, that's, a, that's a pilgrim. But that sounds exactly like a Christian, doesn't it? You know, as Christians, we are foreigners living in a secular society. We don't belong here. <laughs> we don't fit in. And we shouldn't try to fit in. We should not. You know, in John chapter 17, we find a prayer that Jesus prayed uh, for his followers. That's us, all right? Um, uh, but he said there in verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. <laughs> Your citizenship was changed that very moment that you got saved. You got a new passport, if I can put it that way. All right? And so Peter is saying this in my own words. Okay? Dearly beloved, I beg you, as strangers and as pilgrims, as citizens of heaven, please abstain from fleshly lusts. Please. You know, that, which war against the soul, he adds there. But this is really serious. This is really, really serious. So much so that Peter is begging us. You know, that's what beseech means. It's, I beg you, please. That's what it is. He's begging us to abstain from our fleshly lusts. Why? Well, it has all to do with keeping a good testimony. And that is what he's saying in, in verse 12. But folks, we are not citizens of the world. We are not. We are foreigners here. And to, and to have any sort of impact on this world for God, we need to avoid the desires of our own fallen nature, you know, the desires of the flesh. And that, that is an inward thing. It's an inward and private discipline that you need to develop, is to abstain from those things. Remember that when you got saved, your soul actually got saved, but this flesh is not saved, and neither will it be. All right? That day at the rapture, we will all get a new body, all right, that's free of sin, completely free of sin. But until then, you are stuck with this flesh that will always lust after some sort of sinful thing. Always. 
In, in chapter 1 and verse 14, Peter tells us again that we should not perform those former lusts, you know, the things that we did before we got saved. And now he is saying here in chapter 2 and verse 11 that not only should you not do those sins that you did before you got saved, but you should not even entertain those lusts in your heart. You know, those lusts will always be there. Those lusts for those former things that you did. Oh man, it was fun going out with the buddies, you know. Sometimes those thoughts will come into your mind. Don't entertain that. Don't entertain that, the stuff that you did. You know, but those lusts will always be there because you are still in this flesh. But you should not indulge them. That's the key point here. And the reason for that is actually very, very simple. You know, in, in James chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, James actually lays out the process of sin. I'm just going to read it for you. You're welcome to read it with me if you want. But James 1 and verse 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You know, that's the process of sin. It starts with lust. And when you are drawn away by your own lust, and the lust runs its course, you will find yourself sinning. <laughs> and if you do that enough and sin runs its course, you can end up in a grave, uh, uh, an early grave, even if you are a Christian. But okay, let's, let's get into this very quickly, this thing that James is talking about. When he says that you are drawn away by your own lust, he's actually using the same type of language that you would use uh, to describe how an animal is, is drawn away by some sort of attractive bait, you know, into a trap, and that eventually leads to the death of that animal. And that is exactly how temptation works. You know, it, it promises you something good, very good. But in the end, it delivers something that is so harmful to you. You know, Brother Michael um, took me and my kids to the dam last year, Poch Dam year, to, to go fishing. Now, I'm by no means a fisherman, and I proved it that day. <laughs> but I wish I was. You know, I, I literally went fishing three times in my life now, okay, counting, counting that time. Only three times, but I enjoyed it. Oh, man, I enjoyed it. it. It is just awesome. You know, I'm one of those guys, I can sit down and just stare into nothing for the entire day. <laughs> just zone out. Okay. I don't get much chance to do that these days, but man, that's, that's awesome. But I remember when we got to the fishing store before we went to the dam, we, we bought a bunch of lures, you know, to, to bait the fish. And now, they had all sorts of different lures in different shapes and different colors. It, um, you know, the kids enjoyed it. They, they wanted all of them, and I said, no, we're not buying any of that. <laughs> all right. But the guy working at the store recommended this one specific lure, and he said that that was the type of lure that the fish in, at the dam like. Okay? Now, it turns out they didn't like it. We didn't catch anything. <laughs> He's a liar. <laughs> but when we got to the dam and we started to set up, I remember watching Michael as he inserted this big old fish hook into this lure. It's sort of a... What's it, a silicone-type lure or some, something like that? That's, that's the consistency of it, at least. But he inserted this, this big hook into this lure to properly hide it from the fish. 
So the idea is that the fish will see this lure. You know, if, if you actually pull on the line, it looks like a little creature swimming there in the water. So the idea is that the fish should see that thing, think that it's a worm or a, maybe a smaller fish or something, and that it will come and swallow that bait. And then as soon as it swallows that bait, the hook grabs hold into the fish, and you can feel it, and you can um, pull the fish out. So the lure is just the first step that leads to the fish's death. And then it comes to your plate. <laughs> but, folks, sin is just like that. Just like that. It is hidden in this beautiful lure of temptation. You know, your flesh will tell you, come on, come on, just do it once. Just, just one time, just one time. You know, you're actually very strong in the faith. <laughs> You will know when to stop. <laughs> you will know when to stop. J just try it once. You know, you deserve it. Remember, you are in complete control, so you can stop it whenever you want to. That, that's how temptation talks. You know what I'm talking about. You've heard that before. Folks, beware. That is the lure. That is that lure. The temptation is just the bait. But that big old hook of sin is hidden within of that, that temptation. And it's waiting to catch you. You know, when you get drawn away by your own lust, it's a slippery slope. You know, before you know it, you've been caught by it, and you start sinning, and you don't know, how did I get here? Folks, never underestimate the negotiating powers of the flesh. It will always make these lusts seem more attractive to you. And it will always try to convince you that you are stronger than you really are. And that is the war that Peter is talking about here. You know, if your soul wasn't saved, then there's no war, okay? You can just go along with whatever temptation um, strikes your fancy. But now that you are saved, you find this war inside of you, where on the one end, this flesh wants to let you give in to these lusts. And on the other end, you have the soul that tells you, don't listen to that guy, don't listen to that guy. You know, so Peter's advice is just abstain from those fleshly lusts. Don't even give them time of day. If the flesh comes to you with some sort of lust, just put it down. Just put it down. Don't even consider it. That's the best way to keep yourself from taking the bait. Look the other way. Can you imagine if the fish never look at the lures like we had that day? <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. That's how you keep away from sinning. Now, I need to end, end here for today, but we can look at this some more next time. But just look at verse 12 with me, please, um, where Peter actually gives us the reason for abstaining from these lusts, and we've already touched on this. Verse 12 having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So what's he saying? Well, he says, abstain from those fleshly lusts, you know, turn away from them, then you won't sin. And if you don't sin, then you have a good testimony with the world. So that even if they speak anything against you, they can still see your good works and that one day at the day of judgment they can glorify God because of your good works. 
Folks, your testimony is of the utmost importance as a Christian. Your testimony can either lead someone to Christ or it can lead someone away from Christ. Let's abstain from these fleshly lusts. Let's, let's just stay away from them. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And let's make sure that our testimonies back up the message that we are preaching to this world every single day. This is a war, Peter says. Let's go fight this war. Let's bow our heads and pray. Lord Jesus, you've provided everything we need. You are so wonderful. Lord, we, we thank you that, that you have warned us beforehand, even thousands of years before today, you've warned us already how to treat these situations. And Lord, you're smarter than I am, so I trust you. Lord, please help us to abstain from these fleshly lusts. Do not listen to that voice of temptation. Help us to keep a good testimony, Lord. Not, not just for our sakes, Lord, but for the world's sake, so that we can win more to Christ. Lord, but also that we can have a good relationship with you. Because we want to know you, Lord. We want to be like your son, Father. Please, please change us. Please remind us of these things that we've learned today and, and that you've touched our hearts on. Lord, please help us to deal with it and, and to move forward, to, to loosen ourselves from the things of the past and just stretch ourselves forward. We praise your name, Lord, that you are with us and that you go with us and that you stay in us and that you are so faithful and so loving and so merciful. Thank you, Lord, for being with us. Amen.